I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use scriptures as a springboard to launch our thoughts into everyday applications of the text. Well, we are almost there. The end of the book of Numbers is nearly upon us. And as we draw close to the end of this book, we encounter the same issues that we saw at the beginning of the book. The text that we're covering, it's rather dry and boring on the surface. It's imparting information that we are never likely to need. Now, there may be some historical value to what we read in many of these chapters, and perhaps some geographical value, but finding spiritual value in these chapters is rather difficult. We've had a second census, a bit about some girls with no brothers and how to deal with their father's inheritance, two chapters on the finer points of sacrificial laws connected to the festivals, a reminder of the importance of keeping your word, and then an example of Hashem keeping his word. We've had an aside about a couple of tribes that don't want to settle in the land. And finally, we read last week of the 42 stops that Israel made between Egypt and Shittim. How boring is that? It's no wonder that we often find ourselves falling asleep as we open and close the book of Numbers. It's difficult to connect to the text in any real way. It confounds us and bores us, and for many believers, it's simply easier to skip over rather than to attempt to make heads or tails over it. But when we examined the opening of this book several months back, we discovered that there was a train of thought that flowed through the first ten chapters of the book. A flow of thought that, simply put, introduced Israel as they were envisioned to be. It then introduced changes to the culture and society of Israel as they were. Then the text addressed in various ways the objections to those changes that were likely to arise among the people. And finally, the changes were implemented and carried out. A simple flow of thought once you have the lenses through which to see it. And as we went through it, I termed this train of thought as simply flow the flow of the text from one idea to the next in succession. Well, when we get here to the end of the book, if we can pull our eyes off the specifics of what is being stated in each place and look to the themes that are under discussion, we can find a flow here as well. A series of connected ideas that bind all of these boring and confusing passages together. And since we are just two lessons from the end, let's begin to gather our threads from the last few lessons and bind them together to find the flow of Numbers 26 until now. First of all, let's look at where Israel is and what they're preparing to do, because it is this context that's going to inform the flow of this last part of the book. So Israel is camped in Shittim. They're no longer moving. There's nowhere else to go until the conquest begins. And that's where we find the thread for the flow here at the end of the book is the upcoming conquest. This war that's still future to Israel is one that has a lot at stake, and it's one that will take a lot of faith. 
and this is where we find the threads of these final chapters. Numbers 26, as we stated earlier, featured the second census of Israel. But as we went through the second census, we discovered that there was something new added to the census that wasn't stated in the previous. The purpose of the second census was to set the sizes of the land allotments that Israel was to receive as their inheritance once they take the land. The proportions of the allotments were set now, before the conquest. The message to those on the ground being that while you may die in the upcoming conflict, you will still get your portion of the inheritance. Your family will still receive the same portion as they would have had you lived. No one will lose their place because they failed to make it through the war alive. And in Numbers 27, the question then comes up. Well, what about us who don't have a male in our family who can inherit? Do we lose our place? Does our father not receive an inheritance simply because he didn't have a boy? To which an allowance is made in certain cases for the inheritance to be given to the daughters. And then the rest of the chapter discusses the inheritance of the role of leadership in Israel. The position of leadership, unlike the priesthood and the land, is not to be passed down from father to son. It is not based on family. The inheritance of the leadership of Israel is based on calling. It's only God who can equip and qualify a leader, not bloodline. And throughout the book of Judges, we find this ideal played out over and over. The judges of Israel were appointed by Hashem and not by blood. And then in chapter 28 and 29, we read of the inheritance of God when Israel takes the land, his portion that is to be given to him from day to day and holy day to holy day. The things that Israel was unable to give while in the wilderness because they simply did not have it. And in chapter 30, the topic then shifts a bit to the concept of vows. When you say you're going to do a thing, be sure to do it. And for a moment, we scratch our head at the seemingly broken thread in the flow. How does this relate in any way to what was being said before this chapter? And then we hit chapter 31 and the thread comes back together. I have promised you this land, says Hashem. The land is to be your inheritance. But in order to get there, you're going to need to trust me. And so I will demonstrate my faithfulness by commanding a demonstration. Take only 12,000 troops and have them attack those who caused your fall at Baal Peor. Their success will demonstrate my faithfulness to give you this land. In the previous chapter, we read of vows and we scratched our head in wonder. And then we read of Hashem has vowed to give this land. And this demonstration then becomes a first fruit of sorts that he is faithful to live up to what he has vowed. And suddenly chapter 30 isn't out of place at all. It's not a completely new subject that appeared on the scene out of left field. It's a segue into a very connected topic. God is faithful and he will deliver on his promise to give you this land your inheritance. So you, too, should be faithful in the things that you promised to others. And in chapter 32, we read of a few of the tribes that decided that they would rather have their inheritance of their own choosing, one that can be had now, before the conquest, before the next stage of struggle. And as we saw when we were in that chapter, the societal changes that were being implemented had meant a loss of power for some, and it was likely this that led these tribes to settle outside of the land. 
the objections to these changes that God implemented in the beginning being approached once again, but this time they're being lived out in a way that was acceptable to everyone. And then last week, we read a recounting of God's faithfulness to bring them to this place, up to the edge of promise, the step-by-step journey that has led them here. And this week, Numbers 34 and the first part of 35, the flow continues. When you take up your inheritance, the borders of the promise are given, the places that Israel will be inheriting, the places within the places that Levi will be inheriting, the reward that's been promised, it's almost here. So let's open up to Numbers 34 and read about the borders that have been set for Israel. Numbers chapter 34, 1 through 35, 8. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land which falls to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Then your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Tzin along the border of Edom, and your southern border shall be eastward from the end of the Salt Sea. Then your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akravim, continue to Tzin, and be on the south side of Kadesh Barnea, and it shall go on to Chatzar Adar, and continue to Atzmon. And the border shall turn from Atzmon to the Wadi of Mitzrayim, and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This is your western border, and this is your northern border. From the great sea you mark out your border line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor you mark out your border to the entrance of Hamat, to the edge of the border shall be toward Sedad. And the border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Chatzar Anan. This is your northern border. And you shall mark out your eastern border from Chatzar Anan to Shafam. And the border shall go down from Shafam to Rivla, on the east side of Ain. And the border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Kinneret. And the border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This is your land with its surrounding boundaries. And Moshe commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you inherit by lot, which Hashem has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the children of Reuven, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Arden of Jericho, eastward toward the sunrise. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, These are the names of the men who divide the land among you as an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Yehoshua the son of Nun. And take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. And these are the names of the men, from the tribe of Yehuda, Caleb, the son of Yafune, And from the tribe of the children of Shimon, Shemuel, the son of Amahud. From the tribe of Benjamin, Eladad, the son of Kislon. And the leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki, the son of Yogli. And from the sons of Yosef, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Chaniel, the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel, son of Shiftan, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elitzaphan, the son of Parnach, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Paltiel, the son of Azan, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Achihud, the son of Shelomi, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the ones that Hashem commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. 
And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the desert plains of Moab by the Yarden of Yericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they shall give the Levites cities to dwell in from their inheritance of their possession. Also give the Levites open land around the cities. And they shall have the cities to dwell in, and their open land for their cattle, and for their herds, and for all their livestock. And the open land of the cities which you give the Levites are from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits. And the city is in the middle. This is to them the open land for the cities. And the cities which you give to the Levites are the six cities of refuge which you give to the manslayer to flee to. And to these you add forty-two cities. All the cities which you give to the Levites are forty-eight, these with their open lands. And the cities which you give are from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you give many, and from the smaller you give few. Each one gives some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each inherits. I grew up in a restrictive Christian home, and there were many things that we had to do without. Things that were not particularly sins, but which were forbidden by house rules. I was not allowed to play with playing cards. I could not watch certain TV shows. I could not go to a movie theater or dance along or a slew of other things. And needless to say, I felt restricted. There were things that I desperately wanted to do, but I was not allowed. Ways that I could not interact with my friends that made me feel disconnected from them. And so, as I grew up, I pushed back. I hate to say it that I didn't wait to get out of the house before I began to engage in many of these forbidden activities. I went to movies without my parents' knowledge. I got proficient at spades and euchre with my friends. I even danced with girls at my prom and homecoming. I pushed the limits of what my parents allowed while in their presence, but when they were out of sight, I flew right over that line. And then... I moved out of their house, and I went nuts. I indulged in many of the things that they had prohibited, and in doing so, I went beyond the limits that I knew were legitimately from God. After all, I was free. Why shouldn't I live and experience life? I had reached the promised land. The world was my oyster, and I was going to experience it. And in the end, many of the things that I engaged in were destructive. Destructive to myself and to those around me. The lines that my parent had set were not enough to hold me back, and in the human manner when I rebelled against them, I went to the extreme. No one was going to keep me back from my freedom. Now, some of you can relate to this story. It may not have been something that you did, perhaps it is the story of someone that you know. My current hometown features an extremely restrictive Bible college of some renown that's gained a bit of notoriety in the world. My wife attended this university and can relate to you a number of stories of people she knew who graduated and then went on a binge of excess after graduation, and some of them never escaped. Now, I know that many of you are asking yourselves what these experiences from my youth have to do with these chapters. How did we get from your western border will be the Great Sea and your eastern border will be the Jordan River to I was a terribly disobedient child growing up? Well, let me explain. When we go through the wilderness, we go without. 
We don't have everything that we want, and we can't do all that we would like to do. The experience can feel like a straitjacket that's restricting our every move. But in the case of the wilderness, it is God who's doing the restricting. It's Him causing you to go without. And many of the things that He restricts are things that are not necessarily bad. His restrictions in the wilderness do not denote what is sin and what is not, but they are for our benefit. Deuteronomy 8, 2-3 says, And you shall remember that Hashem, your Elohim, led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to know what is in your heart, whether you guard His commands or not. And He humbled you and let you suffer hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. God caused the hunger of the people of Israel in the wilderness. He prevented them from being able to satisfy their every want and even need to the point that they did without food for a time. And why did he do this? Was it because he is mean and he likes to make us suffer? Now, this is the accusation that's thrown his way by many after all. But this is not why Hashem causes us to do without. Because the wilderness is a trial. It is a test. Will you remain faithful when you have nothing? Will you remain truthful when the world seems to turn against you? Will you trust despite doing without, despite the pain, despite the sorrow? And in this we find Hashem revealing another kind of relationship to His people. And that's the relationship of a father to his children. And if we were to continue reading in Deuteronomy 8, we would discover that this is exactly where the text goes as well in Deuteronomy 8, 4 through 6. Your garments did not wear on on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you shall know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so Hashem your God disciplines you. Therefore you shall guard the commands of Hashem your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. Just as with my father, Hashem places restrictions on his children. The point being that when we are on our own and out of his direct control, that we would not stray far from what they had told us. But I didn't understand that. I wanted what I wanted when I escaped that heavy hand. And when the boundaries were removed, I ended up ranging far afield. I failed to recognize that even though I had freedom, I had boundaries still as well. And so when we consider Israel sitting on the shores of the Jordan and Shittim, contemplating the upcoming war, Hashem speaks to them. Hashem knows the human heart. He knows our tendency to push the limits. He knows that if given the chance, Israel will quickly jump off the deep end into whatever strikes their fancy. He knows that men hunger for more ever more. If not bound in and held back, then it would not be long before looking at their other neighbors and seeking to take more than was allotted for them, seeking to take more land than was attended for them, moving beyond the inheritance. Hashem knows that when humans feel the release of tight bonds and they hear the words freedom, we tend to go too far. And so he institutes boundaries, limits for growth, limits in action, limits that are not to be crossed, 
Hashem makes it clear, this is the land of your inheritance. Do not go beyond it. Do not seek the land that I have given to others. Deuteronomy 2, 4-5 says, And command the people, saying, You are about to pass over into the border of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they are afraid of you, so be on your guard. Do not strive with them, for I do not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And Deuteronomy 2.9, And Hashem said to me, Do not distress Moab, nor stir yourself up against them in battle, for I do not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Now the second one may seem a bit confusing, because we imply that Israel did attack and defeat Moab, but they didn't. But we'll get deeper into that when we get to that chapter in just a few weeks. For now, the point is this. This land... The land that Israel is about to occupy, this is their possession and their inheritance. Israel is not to move beyond it once they're settled. The other nations around them have been given their own land, and the land of the other nations is not theirs. Deuteronomy 32.8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Hashem gave the nations their inheritance, and Hashem set up the boundaries of the nations according to his own purpose. And these boundaries are your boundaries. Do not seek to go beyond them. Don't go empire building and don't go grabbing land out of greed. This is yours, that is theirs. Do not presume too much. And so when Israel gets into the land, what do we find happens? Well, they don't stick to the limits. They don't hold themselves to the limits that were set by God. But it didn't happen all at once. In Judges 17.6, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just as my own story, just as with those others who dove off the deep end when the tight restrictions were lifted, Israel took liberty to a destructive end. Everyone chose for themselves the right way of living, and they were not bound by law. They demonstrated that they were not capable of acting according to the limits placed on them in their freedom. They fell, and they failed. Over and over they fell. And over and over God saved and provided for them. But it wasn't only the boundaries on actions that Israel broke at the time of the judges. They also began disrespecting the boundaries of their tribal inheritance as well as the national inheritance. Judges 18, 1-2 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day all their inheritance among the tribe of Israel had not yet fallen to them. And the children of Dan sent five men of their clan, brave men from Zorah and Eshtel, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, Go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micha, and they spent the night there. The brothers of Dan failed to assist Dan in claiming their inheritance from the Philistines. And so the entire existence of the tribe of Dan was one of warfare. They were not able to, on their own, drive the Philistines out of their inheritance, and so they shared their inheritance in Gaza. And after a few centuries of this existence, the tribe of Dan had had enough, 
So they went looking for a quiet place to claim as their own, outside of the boundaries that are set in this chapter. Judges 18, 26-31 says, And the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. They took what Micah had made, and the priest who had belonged to him, and they went to Laish, to a people who were at rest and unsuspecting, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no word with anyone. But it was in the valley that belongs to Bethrehov, and they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born to Israel. But previously the name of the city was Laish. And the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day the land was taken into exile. And they set up for themselves the carved image of Micha, which he had made all the days that the house of Elohim was in Shiloh. Israel failed to hold themselves to the boundaries that Hashem had set for them, and it led to exile. And why did they do this? Because they were free. They were free of Egypt. They were free of the wilderness. They were free of the chosen leaders holding them to the expectations that had been placed on them. Judges 2, 8 through 10 says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Hashem, died and 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at Timnah, Cheres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. And all that generation were likewise gathered to their fathers, and another generation arose after them, who did not know Hashem nor the work which he had done for Israel. Israel forgot Hashem. Their parents did not hold them to the standard of Hashem. Their parents did not train them up in the way that they should go, and they did not tell of what Hashem had done for them. And so these children, they were free. And so nothing would hold them back from doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And there are segments of the Christian church who have fallen into this trap. The stance of, we are free, we are without law, the Torah does not apply, and so we can do whatever we want. God won't hold us back from what we want. I have heard it taught in a church that the verse in Psalm 37, 4, which says, Delight yourself in Hashem, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I heard it taught that this verse means that if you love God, He will place His desires in your heart. And so then the idea is love God, and then do what your heart tells you, because those desires that are in your heart, well, they are from Him. Then go out. Do what is right in your own eyes, because your king has no law that he's placed over you. This twisting of scripture has allowed all sorts of evil to creep into the church. But this is not new. This is as old as Israel itself. Humans will do what we want to do. This is the human heart. This is the human tendency. We need to be held back and shown where the line is. And Hashem knows that we need boundaries to hold us back from doing things that are dangerous or destructive or simply not part of His will. And so Hashem creates boundaries, borders, lines that should not be crossed. And if we consider it, this is how Hashem has acted since the very beginning. In Genesis 1, in the act of creation, Hashem created boundaries in each of the realms that were created. Boundaries between light and dark. Boundaries between the water above and the water below. 
boundaries between water and land, boundaries between day and night, boundaries between bird and fish and between each of their kinds, and boundaries between man and beast, boundaries between male and female, and a boundary between the six days of creating and the seventh. Hashem is a God of boundaries. Why is that? It's because boundaries separate. They create a barrier between things that should not mix, or if we're mixed, will not mix well. And boundaries allow for holiness to exist. Boundaries define what is for us and what is not. And when we consider the Torah and the commands that we are given, we find boundaries being highlighted in many places. The Torah itself is a boundary that's placed on actions that a person should or should not take in order to live fully as human. But even in specific commands, we find boundaries mentioned that act as a means of protection. Exodus 22, 33-34 says, When a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit is to repay. He is to give silver to the owner, and the dead beast is his. If you dig a hole, create a boundary around the hole to prevent others from falling into the hole. Deuteronomy 22.8 When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, so that you do not bring blood guilt on your house when one falls from it. Create a border for your roof, again for the protection of anyone who might go up to the roof. And the most pertinent to the chapter today, Deuteronomy 19.14 Do not remove your neighbor's boundary, which those in the past have set, in your inheritance which you inherit in the land of Hashem your God is giving you to possess. These boundaries, they're not just lines between two peoples. It is the boundaries of all of the land of Canaan. Do not seek to take your neighbor's land. Do not, for the sake of greed, attack Tyre to the north, or Egypt and Edom to the south, or for the sake of moving your boundary stones into their territories. Boundaries are good. But sometimes they're also unnecessary. And that can lead to a whole host of other issues. Now, in Judaism, there is a tradition that you may have run into. The idea being that we should place fences around the Torah. Now, this idea is based on the usual Jewish methods of interpretation. We never see a command given explicitly in the Torah. The first time that we find an explicit mention of this is in the document known as Pirkei Avot, or the Ethics of the Father. In fact, in the very first verse of it, it says, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and gave it over to Joshua. Joshua gave it over to the elders and the elders to the prophets and the prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. They, the men of the great assembly, would always say these three things, be cautious in judgment, establish many pupils and make a safety fence around the Torah. Make a safety fence around the Torah. Now, the fact is that there is no specific verse that states this. And so I have searched for and found the idea where this was arrived at. There's always a foundation in the text for anything that Jews do. And so I've asked several Jews where they arrived at this saying, and the only answer that I have received in person points to Exodus nineteen twelve through 13. It says, and you shall make a border for the people all around uh, Mount Sinai saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. 
Whoever touches the mountain shall certainly be put to death. Not a hand is to touch it, but he shall certainly be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the Yovel sounds long, let them come near the mountain. In the ancient mind, this makes sense. What was Mount Sinai? Well, it's the place where the Torah was given. And so Mount Sinai and the Torah, they're synonymous symbols. And so this command to make a fence around the mountain, it's obviously a veiled command to make a fence around all of the Torah that was given at the mountain. Now, articles that I've read on the subject take the stance that Deuteronomy 22.8 and the command for putting a fence around the rooftop of your dwelling, that this is where this idea finds its source. Regardless, Judaism had decided that this is the Torah command that they need to follow. And so how do you make a fence around the Torah? You create laws that are more restrictive than the given command in order to prevent the righteous from even coming close to touching the border that is being set by the Torah. So even though the Torah is itself a fence, they believe that you should make a fence around the fence of the Torah. The thought being that if you crash through the protective fences that is the traditions, you will not as easily destroy the true fence that is the Torah. And so various sects of Judaism have created extra commands as part of their tradition to prevent the breaking of the Torah. The Torah forbids work on the Sabbath. The rabbis create a rule that says you do not even pick up a tool on the Sabbath, for the person who simply picks up a tool might be tempted to use the tool, and then they have profaned the Sabbath. The Torah says, don't eat chametz during the festival of matzah. Ashkenazi Jews say, well, then don't eat rice or corn or beans as well. Why? Well, because they might be mistaken as chametz. You know, cornmeal does look a lot like flour, and so it's best to just avoid corn altogether so that no one accidentally makes a mistake. The Torah says, do not boil a calf in its mother's milk. Well, Jews then say, well, don't eat meat and dairy together at all. It's impossible to engage in the sin of boiling a goat in its mother's milk if you never even allowed to consume dairy and meat in the same sitting. Now, when we see this for the first time, we stand in shock that such a thing could happen. How could people go along with these restrictive commands that make life so difficult? We look at the lives of Hasidic Jews, and we shake our heads at them, and we quote Yeshua from Matthew 15, 6b-9. So you have nullified the command of God by your tradition. Hypocrites! Isaiah rightly prophesied about you, saying, This people draw near to me with their mouth and respect me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as teachings the commands of men. And it's true. Many of these commands leave Jews around the world looking in on the Torah without ever experiencing life according to the Torah. They have so many fences around the Torah that they never actually get to live the life that the Torah describes as intended by God. And some will point to this and say that we should not allow this. Creating a tradition of any sort is adding to the Torah, and we are expressly commanded not to do this as well. Deuteronomy 4.2 Do not add to the word which I command you, and do not take away from it, so as to guard the commands of Hashem your Elohim, which I am commanding you today. See, we cannot build fences around the Torah because we're forbidden from building fences around the Torah. But then what do we do when we turn to the New Testament? How do we hold this stance and then look at the example of our Messiah and state that he then lived the Torah perfectly? Because we find in his words that Yeshua built fences around the Torah. We find a few of them in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew. 
Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be liable to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the fires of Gehenna. Or Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone looking at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, these are just two examples of the same things that the rabbis attempt to do. They are the creation of a harsher expectation of the Torah than is specifically stated in the Torah. These statements of Yeshua, they create a fence of expectation around the Torah. It's impossible to murder if you do not hate. It's impossible to commit adultery if you do not lust. And so we're forced to sit in this tension. How can Yeshua criticize the Pharisees for their fences when he is on record of creating his own fences around the Torah? And as I pondered and prayed over this question, the answer that makes the most sense comes down to the question of oversight. For who is it that checks if there's lust or anger in your heart? You do. You're the one responsible for this. No one can come to you and chastise you or call you before a council if these things only exist in your heart. It's when they come out into your action and they cause actual damage that you can then be called in. Yeshua's fence demands personal attentiveness and adherence. But the traditions of the rabbis are traditions of action, things that exist on the outside and can be examined by others, things that can bring those in positions of authority down on your head. And you could be chastised for eating a cheeseburger. You could be chastised for having corn on the cob for Passover. You can be chastised for moving your hammer that you left on your passenger seat so that your wife can sit in your vehicle. You can be called to answer for actions that have nothing to do with the Torah or sin at all. And I think that this is where the difference lies. So go ahead and build fences for yourself. If you work on your phone throughout the week and you decide that it would be best if you simply did not pick up your phone on the Sabbath or so that you don't accidentally click on your work app or get sucked into a conversation about work with a coworker, so that you can spend time with God and with your family, then do it. But at the same time, don't hold others to the standard that you set for yourself. It is your fence, not theirs. And as a parent, if you decide to erect fences around certain activities, be sure that you discuss with your children the reason for these fences. Don't go to movies in a theater. Why? Because we, the parent, we can't screen the movie for you beforehand and determine whether it is safe for you or not. We can't fast forward over questionable bits, and it's our God-given duty to protect you, the child. But make sure that you tell them that this is a personal decision, and it's not a sin at all if they choose to engage in this activity once they are on their own. Don't dance, kids. Why, Dad? Because certain types of dancing entice desire and lust, and you're not prepared to deal with that. If you want to dance, then let's find an outlet that allows for you to dance. Ballet, square dancing, line dancing, various forms of folk dancing. Let's engage you in these areas instead. When you're married, feel free to dance in any way you like with your spouse. Because dancing itself is not a sin. 
But this rule is a protective measure for your heart and for your body. And as a parent, you are allowed to create fences for your children. But be absolutely sure that you don't make transgression of those fences into a sin other than disobedience to the parent. And this is where the problem lies with fences. Too often, when a family or institution creates fences of this nature, they put a religious spin on the fence. They equate transgressions of the fence to be sin in and of itself. A tradition has been broken, a rule has been broken, but creating a narrative that your rules are the law of God is dangerous. Fences? Boundaries? These things, they are not bad. They are of God. They are for our protection and the protection of others. Boundaries are necessary in nearly every area of life. But be sure that you are able to recognize a boundary that is from God and a boundary that is of man. And the only way to do this is to know and understand what boundaries God has imposed. Where do they lie? What are the limits? And whose is it? Ask these questions, and then live within the boundaries that have been placed upon you. Yes, even the boundaries of men. Because recognizing proper boundaries fosters life within a person, fosters life within a community, within a nation. So seek life. Dereshchai in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.